Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Sociology on the New Books Network. We are Ellis Jones, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Jerry Lemke, Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Holy Cross. Our guest for this edition is Jim Russell, and we'll be talking to him about his newest book entitled Social Insecurity, 401ks and the Retirement Crisis, a new book just out with Beacon Press. Jim is the author of eight books, including Double Standard, Social Policy in Europe and the United States, a book that has been used in sociology classes here at Holy Cross. Jim is a professor of sociology at Eastern Connecticut State University, and we are very pleased to be with him for the next 50 minutes or so. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Jim, uh, let's begin uh, with the subtitle of your book. The retirement crisis. Tell us what that crisis is and a little bit about how it came to be. Well, the crisis is now that we have millions of Americans that are about to go off their own personal fiscal cliffs when they retire. That is when they shift from their working income to their retirement income because we've had a great switch in the way that uh, retirement has been uh funded and planned in the United States, and that's where the 401k part comes in. Since 1981, we've had uh, what were secure pensions replaced by very shaky investment schemes that uh, simply do not pay as well in retirement. Can you tell us a little bit about when that shift began to happen and, and why it began to happen? Who if there's a shift, somebody's doing the shifting. <laughs> and who, in this case, who is that? Well, it started in 1978 or 1979 when the Internal Revenue Service uh, approved um, Code 401k of the Internal Revenue Code, which was intended as a way to allow people to save tax-free for retirement. Now, you have to understand that uh, traditionally, the way that people viewed retirement, they viewed it as the three-legged stool. You had Social Security, you had a defined ben- benefit pension, that's the traditional pension, and then you had savings. The original idea around the 401k was it would shore up the third leg of the stool by allowing people to have savings and to encourage them to save. Uh But then uh, in 1980 and 81, a number of corporations with financial advisors and so forth um, began to raise the question of whether they could substitute the 401k for the defined benefit pension. And that was uh, very ambiguous in the the code. 
1981, the Reagan administration looked at this question and gave the green light to it. And so the rest is history. We've had a massive shift, substitution of defined benefit pensions, uh, uh, phasing those out or ending them abruptly and substituting for them uh, 401ks. I, I have a statistic for that. Uh, of private sector workers in 1981, those who had retirement plans, 59% had uh, defined benefit traditional pensions. Uh, by uh, 2010, just 19%. Uh, so it's been a massive shift, and that is uh, there are very few things in sociology where you can point to a single cause. Okay, and uh, usually it's some complicated set of causes, but here we have very much a single cause. I liken it since uh, people here are presumably interested in sociology to the cause of uh, massive migration from Puerto Rico to the United States in the sense that you can point to a single factor, which was Operation Bootstrap in the um, late 1940s and early 1950s. That's in the case of Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico. Uh, I mean, it has nothing to do with retirement, but, sure. but it's one of those things where everybody who studies Puerto Rican retirement goes back to a single factor. Everybody who studies the retirement crisis goes back to a single factor, which was the 401k. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, uh, uh, you, you mentioned sociology in your comments, and, and uh, this is the the uh, New Books in Sociology on the New right. Books, Books Network. Uh, some people might say that what you're, what you're talking about here is, is really economics. Um, maybe, maybe it's a stretch for sociologists. What would you say about that? You're a sociologist. Um, how, does this, how does this fit, or how would you say sociologists should be interested in this? Uh, many reasons. Uh First off, there is something called economic sociology. But uh, aside from that, uh, this is really uh, uh, at the center of social policy, which I think is a key area in sociology. It's also, in the case of this particular book, which I I really didn't write for academic Mm -hmm. sociology. I mean, I wrote it as a sociologist with all the training and background in it. But the intention was to provide a book for a general audience of people who uh, did not understand what was going on with retirement plans, which in, in my experience includes the vast majority of sociologists. Mm-hmm. Okay? That is that it is an enormously complicated subject and a lot of people are kind of going on faith that everything is just going to work out. And uh, – you know, I'm here to tell them it won't just work out, um, especially if you're in a 401k. So uh, I also, uh, you know, I uh, I got into sociology from reading C. Wright Mills, and there is this you know wonderful injunction in C. Wright Mills that people should take uh, personal problems and and see them as social problems. Well. The inspiration of this book was when I looked at my 401k and I decided I was in for big trouble in retirement. Um, that uh, caused me to really research it to the hilt and then 
to try to convince other people where I worked, and we ended up building a whole movement that created a national precedent uh, in terms of shifting from a 401k-type plan, which in academia are the uh, plans that are run by TIAA, Kraft, ING, Valak, a number of other companies, we actually were able to get out of it and move into a traditional defined benefit pension, which I would argue uh, is, is something that uh, that possibility exists at many colleges and universities. Mm. Uh, but one of the problems is that a lot of faculty don't realize that they're in trouble. They only realize it when they you know, get ready to retire, and then they end up generally blaming themselves. Mm. Oh, I should have saved more, I should have invested better, or something like that. What they don't realize is the whole game was uh, rigged against them from the beginning. Okay. I wonder if you can um, explain to me two big pieces of the puzzle that are, are kind of coming to mind, and I'm not sure exactly how they fit. The first is all of the uh, companies whose uh, pension benefits uh, for their employees uh, have come under attack, particularly when the company starts to oh, play with bankruptcy, etc. Um, I, I think of um, oh, a number of companies recently in this in this boat. If you could talk about that, and then talk about the, maybe the relationship also with things like um, oh, like the um, protests in Wisconsin around uh, the cutting of benefits to uh, teachers and public employees and state workers. Uh, so that's on the one side, the private and public sector retirement um, benefits being slashed. And then the other piece of the puzzle that comes up is uh, under, I believe, George W. Bush, right before the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, uh, I remember that there was an idea that was gaining a certain amount of popularity before it was ultimately struck down Um and then completely forgotten because of the financial crisis. And that was, let's take all of Social Security and privatize it. You know, let's mm. just take the whole thing and run it into these kind of more volatile funds because the market is doing so well. And of course, people stopped talking about it as soon as the market crashed. Um, but that was an idea. And in some ways, I think at the time, I and many people felt very justified in, in having one, quote unquote, that battle against the privatization of retirement. Well, uh, the first question um, is, uh, you know, why, if I understand it correctly, why uh, private corporations wanted to change out of traditional pensions in the first place? What is that a fair? Well, it was also that they had uh, maybe more traditional pensions, but as soon as, you know, profits started waning, it seemed like they were beginning to uh, backpedal on their promised pensions. And I, a number of these ended up in court, I believe. Yeah, okay. Uh, All right, well, let me let me sort of try to work with that question. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is that what happened when there was the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution is the major part of that shift was um, the whole risk of the investments shifted from mm. the company to the employees. Now, this was basically a private system, okay? But one of the things that I really haven't heard too many people talk about is what kept that system honest 
was the guaranteed benefits. Okay, mm. that meant that the company okay had to make sure that the investments were handled properly by whoever did it. Okay, because they would be on the hook if this thing went down. It it meant that the financial services industry okay had to deliver something. Okay, now once you shifted that risk, what you did is you ended up producing retirement savings of workers, working people, as sitting ducks for the profiteers. Okay? That meant that the financial services industry could pull out as many fees as it wanted, as many commissions, which in and of itself is an enormously complicated subject. Okay? People who know far more than I, who have tried to track all of this down, end up you know, maybe they get 80%, 90% of it, because it's kind of like uh, when you have um, these retirement savings accounts that are being invested, it's like having this huge forest where there are many places to hide in it. There are many pla- many ways to hide fees okay, so that they can't be detected. Uh, the statements that people receive are, um, you know, not particularly transparent. They have some of the fees, but others are so embedded in these uh, financial products that it, it, you know, the best of accountants will be very, very challenged. Um, it reminds me of the uh, the uh, credit card companies with all of the fine print they send with the credit cards. Right. And every now and then you hear of a college or university in which they take their, their law school and as a project, they tr- try to decode just one of those pamphlets. And as the law school kind of takes it on as a project, inevitably they're unable to decode it by the end of the term. Oh, I I think that's an excellent analogy to, you know, to to what's going on. So anyway, you know, back to the 1980s and, and, you know, your question about, you know, these funds being in trouble and therefore could... In fact, um, actually, most of the funds were in very good shape financially. Uh, there's an excellent book called Retirement Heist by Ellen Schultz, a uh, Wall Street Journal reporter who found out that many of these funds were actually overfunded. Okay? And then uh, when you know the boards of directors looked at their retirement funds and they said, well, we've got a bunch of cash here. What are we going to do with it? Uh, they became very tempted to raid the, re- the retirement funds. And so one of the things they did is they started paying health benefits out of them. Okay, so they started, you know, pushing them down. Uh, another thing they did is they often set up uh, separate uh, retirement funds for themselves. Okay, that is for management. So there was a period of raiding. Okay, and then, of course, then when the market goes down, the cushion is lost. Okay, and then, you know, maybe some of those got in trouble. But on the other hand, uh, the troubles that they get into are highly exaggerated. Uh, one of the things that I read is a, you know, an industry publication called Pensions and Investments. And in the last issue, they took a look at the 100 top private pension funds in the United States, and they they are at an average level of funding of 95%. Okay, now. Okay. Um, so 
I, I think for a lot of people, they believe that defined benefit pensions were just unsustainable financially. Okay, but it's not true. Okay, and and it's also not true of the public pensions, which are are under even increased or higher um, attack. Um, so, the, I mean, to use an expression for from sociology, I mean, there's a real difference between the perception of what's going on and the reality of it financially. I also asked you about the Wisconsin case. Yes. Well, actually, I, I was on uh, Wisconsin Public Radio about uh, five days ago, and the uh, the host hostess of the uh, program, Joy Carden, said, "Well, I have to make a disclosure. I'm in the Wisconsin State, you know, public pension plan, and our our plan is 100 percent funded." Okay, so you know, the Wisconsin State Employees Plan, there, there's no problem with it. Uh, now, what Scott Walker wanted to do, okay, which was successful, is to shift uh, some of the uh, contribution from the employer to the employee, mm-hmm. which um, if I look at regressive trends, that, that's the one that I have the least uh, worry about. Okay, I, I mean, I don't mind a shift because it's a, an excellent investment for employees. Um, I mean, what I'm what I don't like is like in, in Rhode Island where they say all new employees have to go into a 401k. Okay, you know, we'll you know, keep our promises to the existing employees, but everybody knew. That's, that's the one that needs to be fought. How can we break this down for somebody trying to wrap their head around the difference between a 401k and a defined benefit package? What does that look like once you finally retire, what is the difference in the check you receive, how volatile it is, etc.? Well, uh, I'll start with exactly the question, but then work a step backward to something you didn't ask, uh, which is that uh, when you receive a pension, uh, number one, it's guaranteed. Number two, it's for your life. Hmm. So you cannot outlive your money. Um, in uh, very technical terms, um, you know, what people who study this, one of the problems with a 401k is what, first off, you never know what you're going to receive. Okay. Uh, when you retire, you have a number of options of what you can do with your money. In general, okay, if people want to, want to figure what the so called financial experts recommend, is you not withdraw more than 4% from your balance. So if you have $100,000, you can withdraw $4,000 a year. Okay, now, it just so happens that uh, the Federal Reserve, okay, in its survey of consumer finance, finds that the average 401k balance of people approaching retirement is $100,000. <laughs> So that means that what people are going to get out of these accounts is $4,000 a year. Okay. Now, other people, you know, you have options here. You could buy an annuity, uh, which is a product that a uh, life insurance company sells where you give them your money and they in turn promise to pay you a certain amount every month. Those pay a little bit better, okay, about 5%. 
if you have an annuity that has something like a cost of living adjustment, which is very important to have because you, you don't want inflation to eat away the value of your retirement income. Um, and then there's still another option, which is what most people actually do because uh, they don't know what to do, uh, is that they leave the money okay, in the investment account um, and then they try to figure out how much to withdraw every year. Now, this now sets up another problem, uh, which is you can have two big problems, withdrawing too much or withdrawing too little. Uh, if you withdraw too much, you run out of money, and if you're, you're still alive, you have a big problem. This is what is called in the literature longevity risk, okay, that you're going to live too long. Now, I happen to think living a long time is a good thing, okay? <laughs> and, and it's a, a strange part of this literature that even the World Bank gets into this question of old age risk, you know, people living too long. Um, and then the other uh, risk you have is, so, okay, you're not going to do that, so you withdraw just a little bit, okay? And then you die and you've got a bunch of money left over. Okay, now, um, that's great news for your heirs, okay, but it means that you've had to live on less income during your retirement. So it's it's a very erratic type of situation that uh, people are in who are in uh, this type of uh, system. Yeah. What do uh, defined benefit uh, pensions look like in contrast to that? Okay. All right. Well, first off, you, you know, the whole idea of the uh, defined contribution 401k approach is, is that you save money, uh, you invest it individually, they're private accounts, and then the account builds up till you retire, and then you use that to finance your retirement. Okay. In contrast with a defined benefit pension, what happens is that you, you and or your employer put money into a pool okay, with other employees, okay, and then that pool pays benefits to retirees. So the fact that the system is pooled gives it an enormous benefit advantage for retirees because uh, it's uh, risk sharing. Okay, so like if you consider Social Security, I mean, Social Security is a defined benefit system. Uh, in Social Security, if you die shortly after starting to receive your benefits, uh, the money stays in the pool, okay, and you know, it uh, helps to give higher benefits to those who live longer. So the way that I put it is that the short-lived subsidize the long-lived. Mm. Okay, and that's why Social Security can be mo more generous than any type of private plan um, can be. Um, if you'll allow me to indulge in this a little bit, um, since... Uh, the late 1970s, there's been a concerted campaign by very conservative um, think tanks to undermine confidence in Social Security. And one of the lead organizations is the Cato Institute. Sure. And in their handbook for policy, you know, for to 
you know, talking points when you're dealing with politicians. They state that Social Security is a very bad deal, especially for younger workers. Okay, that they could, if they took their contribution and invest it, they would do much better. And they've repeated that ever since um, late 1970s, early 1980s. It's in the latest edition. Well, I actually tested that uh, because uh, I'm a person who's over retirement age. You know, normal retirement age is 65. So I don't have to speculate about this. I actually can look at actual experience. And for people like me, uh, you have a Social Security statement that lists the total amount of contributions. You know what you're going to receive as a benefit, so you can look at the rate of return. Well, I also have in my TIAA, CREF, and other accounts like that, um, you know, the, the total amount of contributions and what the return will be. So I could compare them. And in fact, Social Security had a higher rate of return than my 401k, you know, approach. Now, I also have to say to somebody who really knows all this, uh, technically, I didn't have a 401k. I had a 401a. Uh, these are just different parts of the uh, Internal Revenue Code, uh, but they're all the same approach to retirement, including the IRA is the same approach where you save money, invest it, and have private accounts. You know, it strikes me, when Jerry, you asked about uh, why sociologists should study this, and the problem seems like a classic sociological problem of power, where we move... Uh, retirement accounts to put the onus on individuals. And so you lose that kind of that collective power that could then be a counterweight to the power on the other side. And now you have these enormous financial institutions able to kind of exploit the way that, say, credit card companies do with the fine print individuals in a much more effective way than they could exploit a collective in which those maybe tiny fees would show up on the radar much more quickly because they would be millions of dollars collectively, et cetera. Um, and that in some ways this is classic in the U S uh, you know, we, we want uh, individual choice. We want individual control. And yet we don't realize what we've, we're losing when we lose out on this collective um, approach that we lose power in, in, uh, and, and give it up for choice instead. I think that's a very shrewd interpretation of what, what's going on here. I mean, the more fragmented we become, the more individualized, um, uh, the easier it is really for you know, the, the big financial powers to really control the system to their advantage. And, you know, if you look at the period from the 1980s to now, uh, the financial services industry has expanded enormously. People who study economic sociology refer to this as a financialization of the the economy. Um, And what I think is a huge driving part of it has been this shift from 401k, from, you know, traditional pensions to 401ks. Now, traditional pensions indeed benefited the private, you know, uh, 
financial services industry because they were in charge of investments. But they had to stay honest in it because there was a guaranteed benefit. Okay, so they, you know, it wasn't, you know, as I call it, just sitting ducks for them to start pulling out fees here, there, and everywhere. It, it kind of reminds me also of uh, once, if I can indulge in a personal story, that our host here, uh, Jerry Lemke, had sold the house, and, and he was in a in another state at the time, and I remember him uh, complaining that uh, it seemed like everybody was grabbing a piece of the the money, you know, mm-hmm. because he wasn't on the spot to control it. Okay, uh, and he did not have a guaranteed, you know, return from that house. And I think it's very much the same with these retirement accounts now. Once you shifted the whole um, risk from the employer to the employee, you lost what you know what was uh, keeping the system honest. It was a good point to uh, remind our, our listeners that uh, we're talking today with Jim Russell. Um, he's the author of a new book from Beacon Press entitled "Social Insecurity: 401ks." And the retirement crisis. You know, it's interesting. We mentioned Scott Walker earlier, and we're talking about these financial institutions. I'm wondering if there are other prominent names out there that you think are important players to know about. Are there financial players, particular financial institutions or banks? Are there uh, political players that um, are making uh, this happen? You mentioned the Cato Institute. What are some others that are involved? Well, um, if you line up uh, the most powerful people who have moved things in a neoliberal direction in the United States, this is an important component of it. Um, I mean, one of the uh, parts of the book that um, I I think is is hair-raising is that in 1981, when 401ks began to take off in the United States, was the year in which Chile, under a military dictatorship, completely privatized its national social security system. Uh, And the man who was in charge of that was a Harvard-educated Chilean by the name of Jose Piñera. Okay, now, you know, this is under a military dictatorship. You know, nobody can particularly protest it. Uh, And nobody really knew, you know, I mean, people... Okay. I mean, there were all kinds of promises that people would get fabulously wealthy with these accounts. A lot of the arguments that you were talking about were used in Chile, too. You know, you own your own account, uh, you know, all, all that stuff. Then um, 1990, the dictatorship ends in Chile. Okay, And beginning in the early 1990s, the World Bank basically endorses the Chilean approach. Okay, uh, And major figures. Uh, Larry Summers okay, commissions a study okay, here. Maybe, maybe tell us uh, briefly who Larry Summers is. Um, well, Larry Summers has been president of Harvard. Uh, he's a very accomplished uh, economist, uh, was um, up for potentially heading the Federal Reserve System in the United States. Uh, he has been uh, the head of economic advisors for two different administrations. So he's been at the center of of economic policy in the United States. Well, um, 
1994, World Bank produces uh, its major report called uh, Averting the Old Age Crisis, okay, which basically calls for the internationalization of the Chilean model. Okay, and, and so World Bank advisors uh, also uh, get consultants from Chile, go all over Latin America. They also go over Central and Eastern Europe, um, trying to get those countries to privatize their national retirement systems. And they're very successful in large parts of Latin America, in Argentina, uh, in Mexico, uh, two major countries. They managed to entirely privatize um, the systems along the Chilean uh, path, and then a lot of smaller countries. Uh, it's a more uneven success rate in Eastern and Central um, Europe, but you know there's still that influence uh, is out there. Okay, well, end of the 1990s, who shows up uh, in Washington to head the Cato Institute's Social Security Privatization Project? Than none other than Jose Piñera, the person who had been the architect of the Chilean change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, come 2001, and there's a national election in Chile, and uh, the, actually it's 2005. Uh, before that, beginning around late 90s, 2000s, we, we get a generation of people who are now retiring under these you know, plans in Chile, and they realize they're not getting very much from them. Now, it's, it's also, uh, when they did this change in 1981, if you were in the old system and you wanted to stay in it, you could. I mean, there was a lot of pressure on you to cash out of it and go into these private accounts. But a number of people stayed in the old system. So we could compare the two groups. And, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about more than double uh, the benefits coming out of the old system than in the new system. So this produced a retirement crisis in Chile. Okay, And in 2005, it was the leading issue in the presidential election. And it continues to be an issue. Uh, in Chile about what to do about. Now, if I can bounce next door to Argentina, uh, in 2008, Argentina completely reversed it. Uh, That is, they reversed the whole privatization, uh, swept all the accounts, put them back in a public account, and they were the first country in the world to really renationalize their Social Security system. Uh, Bolivia has followed suit in 2010. Uh, there are activists in another number of countries who would like to do this. So there's been a realization in a number of countries that these things don't work. Now, if you don't mind me talking here, okay, um, in Connecticut, we have very much of a parallel situation because uh, I first started looking at this in the 1990s, and I, uh, you know, was just trying to estimate what my benefits would be. And so I compared my benefits to people because where I worked, you could either be in the state pension fund or in TIAA CREF. So I looked at my benefits, and I looked at the state benefits, and I expected... You were were in TIAA CREF. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I expected that 
they might be a little bit less. You know, there was a certain trade-off. Okay, but when I found out there were less than half, okay, first I thought I had done the math wrong, so you know, <laughs> I did it over several times, and, and wow, you know, this was something. And I tried to, you know, point this out to other academics and, um, uh, you know, they just, you know, their eyes would roll. <laughs> they check their watches. You know, they either thought I was totally crazy or, you know, they just thought that, you know, they just couldn't understand it. You know, so and, and that was pretty much the situation we had. A, in other words, we had a parallel situation to Chile okay, in which you had two different systems and you could compare them. Okay, but um, yeah, even telling people that didn't seem to make them want to do something. What made them want to do something was 2008 recession when they saw dramatic drops in their accounts. Then they began to listen. I mean, they had mm-hmm. to be hit over the head with a two by four to really begin to realize, well, uh, you know, maybe this isn't so good. And and that's what then started our whole movement that you know we were able to successfully, you know, like the Argentinians, you know, or the or the Bolivians to move from a defined contribution to a defined benefit system. And we've had a number of people now who've retired under it and who would not have been able to retire if it had not been for that shift. There's a whole bunch of questions that I have that, that have been raised here in the course of the discussion. But, but w- w- one of them, and uh, I, I hope this takes us back a little bit to Jim Russell, the sociologist, and um, a, a little bit about uh, you know what what moves you right as a thinker, uh, uh, as as a, as, an, as an intellectual. Uh, you used the term think tanks when talking about the Cato Institute mm-hmm. and. One of the things I like about your book so much is that it's such a wonderful read. Uh, something like Thank this you. can get terribly wonky, and, <laughs> but your but your book is not. And one of the hallmarks of that, I think, is your your chapter titles. Mm-hmm. One of those being army tanks and think tanks, yeah. uh, and and the think tanks part of that, of course, is we could say the Cato Institute is one of those. Uh, the army tanks. Um, you're probably referring to Chile and, and other mm-hmm. places. Um, one of the remarkable stories here is that to write this section on Chile, you went to Chile. Right. right? This is not armchair sociology. Right. You mm-hmm. went to Chile. And I'm wondering if you can kind of quickly give us the war story on that. What was that like uh, going to Chile? And, uh, and uh, then eventually I'd like to come back to the influence that C. Wright Mills had on you and um, and and how, and how that happened in the course of your academic life, but start with the trip to Chile. Well, I uh, you know I had uh, an opportunity um, with uh, some a, a grant, and I was trying to think what I needed to do, and then it was very obvious to me because I was working on this project. I had to really go to Chile, which is really the center of it. I mean, if you look up Jose Pinera, uh, I think it's josepinera.com on the uh, internet, you'll find uh, a website uh, where he has a map of the world and and uh, I think it's in red, all the countries where the privatization of 
retirement accounts has progressed. It's kind of like the old maps of the spread of communism. Okay, but this is <laughs> in a, reverse. In reverse, right? Okay. Okay. So Chile uh, is really held was held up as the model of all of this, and so, that, so that's really where I had to go. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, some friends of mine, uh, you know, actually uh, were able to lead me to exactly the right place. Okay, which was. Uh, Senda, uh, the Center for um, Alternative Development in Santiago, and in particular, man. But, but you had these friends not just by accident, right? And there's a backstory to that too, to how you came to know people in Chile. Uh, maybe briefly tell us that. Well, another part of my identity is Latin American studies, mm-hmm. so I tend to know people who. Deal who are Latin Americans and deal with Latin American studies, and so I, you know, I was able to call people up, you know, and ask them mm-hmm. if they knew anything, and 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 I, I I was just very very lucky to get a, a very very good contact. So um, I ended up uh, reaching uh, Manuel Riesco, okay, who is uh, the main person uh, in exposing uh, the whole fraud of the Chilean. Um, privatization system. And his is a very nice story also that he told with great relish to me how he got onto it, that uh, he was doing a radio program like this program, uh, and it was out of their research institute, and they were talking about things like economic crises in the world, the economy, and so forth. And the program was at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, where the only people who could possibly listen to it were either housewives or people who were retired. And as we, he feared, they didn't have more than 30 listeners of this, you know, this very involved subject. And then one day he receives a letter from a, a person who's retired uh, that says that the whole retirement system doesn't work and the man has pages of figures. And so uh, Riesco kind of looks at it and doesn't know what to do with it. He puts it in his briefcase, and uh, I don't know, a few weeks later, he opens up the briefcase, looks at it while he's on the subway, studies it, and he can't see anything wrong with what this person has said. So he delivers it to people who are more mathematically uh, I don't know, qualified okay, at his research institute. They look at it, and they say, I mean, this guy's on to something. And then they, uh, this is now long after the dictatorship, uh, and they, it's during the period of the consultation governments, they managed to get a grant from the government to study this. So they actually get all the facts and figures from the Chilean system, which totally validate the argument of this man, that this thing just doesn't work. Okay, and, uh, you know, meanwhile, people like Jose Pineda are continuing to go around the world talking about what a shining success the Chilean system is, and it's, it's there. The question is, success for whom? <laughs> right. Well, it, it, there's another story here. Um, in 2005, um, 
when Bush is trying to privatize, he really wasn't trying to privatize the whole system. He knew he couldn't get away with that. It was a partial privatization. And he cited very favorably the Chilean example. And in fact, Jose Piñera had talked to George W. Bush, right? You know, in his, his whole quest. And so while this is being debated in the United States, the New York Times gives Piñera space, um, an op-ed space, which was premium space, okay, and Pinera, you know, does this shining, you know, that, what a shining success the Chilean system is. Well, Riesco saw that in Santiago. He wrote a response to it, which was not published by the New York Times. However, something better happened. Um, about two weeks later, Larry Reuter, a reporter from New York Times shows up in the office in Santiago carrying the draft of the Riesco answer to Piñera and spends the day with him. Okay, and they just, you know, show him why this thing doesn't work. And then about a week later, um, a major front page article comes out in the New York Times, you know, that the Chilean system has failed. And in the course of that, being good reporters, they asked Jose Piñera uh, for his comment about it, and he had no comment. Hmm. He refused to comment for the story. But he continues to go on, okay, and all the right-wing uh, you know, think tanks continue to sing the praises of private accounts, hmm. even though, you know, in every place that they've been, they have not worked for retirees. They do. On the other hand, as you indicated, they do a very good job for the fin- of supporting the financial services industry. We have about five minutes left. Um, yeah, you know, I actually was interested to hear a little more about your inspiration from C. Wright Mills and maybe even some other sociological theorists that... Um, have seemed to be either inspirational or useful to you in your uh, research as a sociologist and how you think. Uh, I think Jerry and I have spent long enough teaching sociological theory that um, we both appreciate seeing those theorists uh, utilized in a way that actually results in um, something interesting. Well, I'm going to have to do it. Okay, um, say something shocking. Uh, the single best book in the background were the two books. Okay, that I would put one more recent is um, a book by Robin Blackburn. Okay, uh, called uh, "Banking on Death." Okay, it, it's a hard book for a number of people to read. It's very specialized, but he studies retirement accounts. Okay, and, and that was very, very useful for me. He's British, and uh, he's a historian. He looks at slavery, he, okay, and he uh, is also, I would say, the major left-wing expert on retirement systems in the world. So that, that was very, very useful. Before that, capital, not capital for the 21st century by mm. Piketty, but the original capital by Karl Marx uh, taught me an enormous amount about how capitalism works 
okay, and what the different interests are within it. So that as soon as I took a look at this, all of my suspicions were really verified. Okay, that of course, uh, if you have finance capitalism, they're in the business of getting profit. Okay, and if working people are not protected, they will have a larger expropriation of their retirement savings. So, I, you know, I don't think it, you know, if I hadn't at a very early step in my career really looked at the question of the economic structure of a capitalist society, I don't think I would have been quite as sensitive uh, to all of this and then, you know, the kind of aha moment comes when it turns out it really is true, okay, mm. that Wall Street, you know, is out for itself, okay, and, you know, we're just kind of pawns in that and people's retirement accounts are, you know, are just means for them to accumulate more profits, more capital, mm. etc. Is, is there something in uh, those books uh, uh, by uh, Robin Blackburn or, or, or Capital uh, or in your experience with this then that points things in some direction um, to de-pawn the people, to empower, to empower people? Um, you know, what kind of strategy, tactics come out of, come out of your study, come out of your, your book, uh, well, I think it's classic uh, social movement stuff. I mean, first there has to be awareness for people who want to do something. And right now, I would say that the right wing has captured the discourse on all of this. I mean, you can't men mention public employee pensions without people having a Pavlovian response going, aha, unfunded liabilities, uh, these things don't work, um, but, you know, da, da, da. Uh, even though that's untrue, Okay, it's what a lot of people believe. So there's an enormous amount of educational work um, that needs to be done, which is in part the way I, why I wrote the book the way I wrote it. I didn't write it for policy specialists. Mm -hmm. okay, I wrote it for people who are concerned about their own retirement situation uh, and especially for people who want to try to do something about it. Now, it's a lot like healthcare. Okay, this is not a technical problem. It's a political problem. There are solutions, very easy solutions, but there are a lot of interests that benefit from the continuation of the status quo, just like in healthcare. I mean, that's why we got this kind of Rube Goldberg type <laughs> Affordable Care Act when, you know, the Canadians, you know, solved it in a far simpler way and in a far better way. It's because they had to keep those interests, you know, in, at the table. And I think a lot of the reforms that are being discussed, uh, I, I go through what comes up in Obama's State of the Union addresses as really classics of reforms that uh, are very friendly to the uh, financial services industry okay, and give the illusion that they're doing something about retirement. Um, there are much better reforms uh, which would have to inevitably increase the public sector in all of this. All right. Thank you. We've been talking with Jim Russell, uh, the author of Social Insecurity, 401ks and the Retirement Crisis. Um, that's
just out a week or so ago uh, in um, April, early May of 2014 with Beacon Press. Thanks for being with us. Well, it was absolutely my pleasure. 